there's a huge amount of the insiders know those wines are horrible. They're horrible with food. That's not sophisticated. So, so nobody's safe from the wrath of the, of the great wine experts who are all working on a foundation of gibberish and misinformation. You're listening to Everyday Food and Wine, the show about innovators, creators, and experts in the fields of food and wine. I'm Sarah Faraday, and on today's episode, I sit down with one of the first two Americans to earn the title of Master of Wine, Tim Haney. Tim and I will be covering several highly controversial topics in the fields of food and wine and how the history of food and wine as we know it might all be a complete ruse. Tim's seminars, wine tastings, and demonstrations of sensory perception offer unique perspectives on many facets of wine enjoyment and matching wine and food. In addition to being a master of wine, Tim is a professionally trained chef and international consultant to the wine industry. He is also the author of Why You Like the Wines You Like, Changing the Way the World Thinks About Wine. Known for his engaging style, irreverent humor, and elite professional status in the wine and food community, Tim has been hailed as a guru, visionary, and dubbed the wine anti-snob by the Wall Street Journal. Due to the incredible amount of educational information we'll be covering. This will be published as two separate episodes for your enjoyment. Tim, thank you so much for joining me. Great to be here. Thanks, Sarah. Of course. So you were one of the first two Americans to get the title of Master of Wine. Um, You've been involved with wine professionally for over 35 years. Can you just start kind of at the beginning? I know before getting into wine, you were a professionally trained chef. Can we talk about where the road of food and wine actually began for you? Well, they kind of came together simultaneously because it's actually, I've been doing this for 55 years. (laughs) Oh, okay. 55 years. I need to update my notes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sorry about that. So uh, at the ripe age of 14, uh, my dad was um, uh, an administrator for a medical society in Miami, Florida, Dayton County Medical Association. So he hung out with a lot of doctors and uh, uh, was a member of the Shenderotisers and and things like that. So wine was just part of, you know, the, the formal dinner uh uh, aspect of uh, dining. And uh, so I I was just fascinated by it and kind of loved the taste from the get-go and started reading wine books and started cooking when I was 14 growing up in Miami, Florida. So uh, wow. the um, uh, through high school and whatever, it, it, it was a great social tool because if I went into a, a liquor store and ask for a Grand Cru Burgundy by name, nobody would ask for ID. Uh, <laughs> true story. I believe it. <laughs> and so, so and, and the cooking, and so we would do dinner parties at the house when the parents were away or uh, at the beach grilling duck and making a scargo. And I tried to actually go into uh, the wine business Um around 1970 and was summarily told, well, you're not old enough to drink. And (laughs) I said, well, I've I've been buying wine here for years. I didn't know. I didn't say that. Uh, So I, I, um, uh, I got a, I dropped out of college to go to work at Burns Steakhouse in Tampa, Florida, the largest wine list in the world and a really phenomenal eccentric restaurant and uh, that that was kind of it. And for, so for for the first ten years of my formal career, I was actually doing apprenticeships and became an executive chef uh, uh, with a very grounded uh, apprenticeships in pastries and sauces. So from a very traditional French background, if you will. Yeah. So then you you were a chef. Where did the like what led you down the road of becoming a master of wine? How did you hear about that, especially being one of the first two? Well, the uh, uh, 
when I left uh, the culinary world, I was in Atlanta and I was hired to be a wine buyer and um, a wine manager for a group of stores called Happy Herman's and won't mean anything unless you're from Atlanta. Uh, Does it still so, exist? No, unfortunately, Happy Herman's is gone. But um, uh, it was gourmet groceries. It was a deli, full service deli, <clears throat> a great wine selection. And I was responsible for opening a new store up in North Atlanta. And I was just a kid in a candy shop. I had wine books all around me. And now I'm in the wine business full time. So um, it was it was just phenomenal. And that was uh, 1979 uh, in Atlanta. And I had in the wine books and in wine magazines, um, you, you would read about you would read stories from people and see the initials MW afterwards and people alluding. So I had I had seen the concept and then there was a wine salesman uh, that called on me on the store. His name was Dan Wright, and he had taken the examination five times and never passed. And I was wow. just, yeah, absolutely. And, and he was English. So uh, in 1988, um, I uh, joined the Behringer organization and moved from Atlanta out to the Napa Valley. And the Love Institute. Behringer. Yeah, I know. What a great place and uh, worked there 11 years. Uh, when I got there, uh, the word on the street was they were internationalizing the Master of Wine program, which basically it's the business and science of wine, and it's focused on um, uh, before 1988, you really had to work in the UK wine trade to know about the laws and bonds and you know, legal aspects and a lot of the business elements. So in 1988, they shifted it. And the first person who wasn't working in the UK wine trade, Michael Hill Smith from Australia, became the first what was known as international candidate to pass. Um, I was accepted into the program and uh, sat the examination and epically failed it in 1989. And there were about six Americans in this group. And then the following year, 1990, Joel Butler and I passed. So we were the first two uh, to actually pass the examination, uh, what, 30 years ago. Wow. And earned the credential. That's amazing. So what was it, you know, when you and I spoke before, what was it that actually caused you to fail your first try at getting your Master of Wine certification? It was essay writing, right? Well, it was essay writing and and also um, being able to, to formulate uh, I, uh, concepts and communicate concepts. Uh, so... So the writing end of it was was a big problem for me. So in 1989, actually, I think it was early 1990, <clears throat> before taking the exam again, I signed up for a writing course to uh, to help with formulation of, of ideas and whatever. And it was in San Francisco. And so I went from Napa Valley and staying in a nice hotel and uh went down to register in the morning, the next morning. And it, it was just one big conference room at the Stan, Stanford Court Hotel. And, and the, the registrations for something for electrical engineers. And I'm going like, what the hell is this? And, and I said, somebody said, can I help you? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm signed up for, for this writing workshop. She said, well, if you look at it, you dummy, it's that was last week in San Jose. Um, oh, no. Yeah. I said, yikes. Well, what's this? She said, this is disruptive innovation and critical thinking for electrical engineers. <laughs> I said, oh, cool. Let's go. So <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> what the heck? I love <laughs> it. Carved out the time. I've got got the reservation, and uh, 
I'm at Stanford Court Hotel. Let's do this. So I spent uh, three days with 80 electrical engineers, uh, and it just blew my mind. It was it was so fantastic. Uh, the relevance today. Let me just sort of, if I can, do a, a fast forward segue. The, the wine industry keeps looking for innovation, right? You've seen it. How do we innovate? How do we engage millennials? What's the next big thing? And uh, part and parcel of this whole program was when you think it's actually the product and not understanding the market and then designing the product, um, uh, things don't work. it's a it's a it's a bad process and so what's what struck me then and what i've been doing the past 30 years is looking at consumers uh leveraging my knowledge of history and traditions and culture uh and and going off in a whole whole new direction uh that People think is controversial, but it really shouldn't be because it can all, you know, I can show you the sciences or the history or whatever. It's just that the wine industry has um, a very myopic way of doing things and a, a way of arguing and defending, you know, well, this expert or I'm the expert or whatever. And so the, the, the kind of Ironic thing is the next big thing is not another wine product, but it's actually who the wine industry is, who we stand for and how we inter- interact and interface and understand consumers. So then we can fill in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny how it's just like, you know, you showed up theoretically at the wrong place in the wrong time, but it ended up being such a pivotal moment in your ability to, you know, create this whole new um, concept that we're about to dive into within the wine world. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's, it's kind of the story of my life. I'm, I'm <laughs> ADD and I'm dyslexic and uh, I just sort of bounce around from one thing to, to another and, and, and this this course gave me structure for how my brain can work more effectively and efficiently. Uh, I can pretty much guarantee if I had not sat through these three days and and gone through this, uh, I would never have passed the exam. And the, the pass rate's about eight percent. And also, just for clarification, a lot of people have heard of master sommeliers and seen the movies about sommeliers and and so forth, and that's an incredible, incredible program uh, for, in the hospitality industry and for the service and, and, and so forth of wine. And the master of wine is more the business and the technical end of things. So just as a clarification. Perfect. So in jumping into that and, you know, the the engineering class being able to teach you how to be more objective and observant, you know, we hear so often about the perfect food and wine pairings, but it's your hypothesis that food and wine pairing as an entire concept is a giant ruse. I think I have a quote from you from your article in the drinks business that says we need to celebrate the diversity of consumers, not make them feel stupid. You can serve Sauv Blanc with steak. With steak, why not? Yeah. So well, so let's let's take a a single word and and I I get very word focused and word centric. Objective. Um. There actually is no such thing as objectivity. This is going deeply philosophical on you. Other Go than, other than that an object exists. Any attempt to quantify it, to describe it, to whatever. And, and, and this is just part of being human is you're trying to describe something, you think you're doing it objectively, but if somebody speaks a different language, then you're not being objective. It's subject to that language. Um, we see, hear, feel, taste, touch things, and we think then, oh, objectively, I can say that this is like that or, or whatever. 
And uh, if you don't have certain receptors, if you're blind, if you're this or that, these, you know, so, so to start with a, a, a point that nothing is objective uh, in the human experience, <laughs> uh, you say, oh, I, I share the same point of view as this other person. Well, you can't. It's actually physically impossible, even if somebody's sitting in your lap. You know, they're not sharing your point of view because you're now seeing the back of their head. <laughs> so anyways, we that's and, and that's a big part of, of of the whole premise that I'm forwarding is is perception is personal. And we just and and to a, such a huge extent that that's where we kind of then roll into, you know, what I'm doing and, and the idea that why can't you serve a Sauvignon Blanc with your steak? So. So with your sort of no rules approach, how did you decide to shift your focus from the typical, you know, what to pair with the dinner to what to pair with the diner? So the first thing is it's not a no rule. Uh, uh, you get to create the rules. Okay. Um, and so what all we're doing is saying the rules, the rules are up to an individual and you'll find collectives of people who, oh, yes, this with this is great. So there are collective rules. Um, and, and even more, there's principles. There's things that happen that are explainable through science. And some of them are really most of them are really actually simple. But then my past 30 years has been running down <laughs> all these concepts and uh, and 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 the way the whole uh, what to pair the the wine with the diner not the dinner actually came from uh, a, a legend in the wine industry his name's Harvey Posert uh, people outside the wine wine industry especially California wine industry probably have never heard of him but he literally invented the business of PR at a, at a really high level for wineries and uh, actually created the Napa Valley. Uh, and he's, he's, wow. um, uh, uh, he, he was at a, at, at an event that I was at shortly after I had published a 54 page study of the phenomenon that we're going to be talking about. And part of the study and, and part of the premise is, is that a lot of people are genetically pretty much wired to only like sweet wines. Um, and he came across the room to me and I saw him and an old friend and, and, uh, and he was at Mondavi when I was at Behringer and whatever. And he's from, from Memphis. And he goes, he goes, Tim, you really need to publish a book. And I said, Harvey, I, I can't even read a book, let alone write a book. And he says, we'll take care of that. You've got to do this. And I said, well, why are you so hep on this idea? And he says, well, I'm one of those people you've identified along with that doctor in your study. I can't stand dry wine. I told Bob Mondavi that when he hired me and I don't even like your wines. And Bob said to me, he says, I don't want, I'm not hiring you to like my wines. I'm hiring you to make the Napa Valley and our winery famous. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So Harvey and I were, were going along and I was showing him a, a passage in a, a, a great, uh, a book called La Russe Gastronomique. It's a French uh, dictionary of in, sort of encyclopedic work of, of French cuisine that was written in 1938. And very clearly on the subject of wine and food, there's a, a passage that when the finest dishes are being served, you serve the finest wines, the Lafitte, the Romanée, and these kind of things. Or if the guests prefer, serve them white wine or sweet wine. And it's ab absolute unequivocal. It's there. And he, and he goes, oh, yeah, well, and that was the tradition in France. They never paired wine and food. That's, that's the ruse. That's, 
one of the many, many delusions that's perpetuated. And, and so Harvey turned to me, he says, I think what they're trying to say is you pair the wine to the diner, not the dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so that's I where that came from. <laughs> I love that. I think it's, it's so important. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's the perfect way to sum it all up. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you said, you know, especially here, you know, people liking sweet wines, you're like, oh, well, you unrefined. And I know how you are with words. I mean, I talk about what unrefined or what like being refined means, but or sophisticated. Um, or, sorry, we, oh, yeah. yeah, sorry. Unsophisticated. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's not. It's actually um, kind of the it's, it, you have a, just a different set of taste buds. Yeah, and, and it's this laundry list of delusions and misinformation that that really kind of started after World War II and a couple of things had happened. For the first time after World War II, inexpensive sweet wine could be produced at a at a lower alcohol level for the first time in history. And it was it was a, a filtration uh, that sterile filtration invented for for uh uh, safe water for the troops. And and so the, the wine writers were all wine merchants and they started to insert these things. But of course, that that little bit of sweetness uh, is is used to hide a flaw in the wine. And so and sweet wine is unsophisticated. And for people who haven't, you know, elevated or matured to better wines. And it was total crap. I mean, the Spanish were drinking sangria. The French were drinking Kier, celebrating, you know, yeah, the end of the war and all the crap wine that was available by putting sweet uh, liqueur and, 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 uh, and, or a cube of sugar in their, in their wine. And then all of a sudden, sweet wine became bad. And uh, sweet wine was always loved and uh, and actually quite rare uh, and very much in favor in France and Italy and Spain and Germany. So we just kind of got crazy about it. So where did that idea come from that sweet wine was for the uh, like for the unsophisticated palate with just people talking and spreading their opinions or where did that yep. actually come from? Yeah, it's. It, it's called uh, some, something in, in um, social dynamics called a, a collective delusion. So if, if you're an insider, if you're in the know, you drink dry wine. And if you drink sweet wine, well, you know, that's you, 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 you're, it's like drinking Coca-Cola. And that's actually one of the, the one of the things that you'll hear over and over and Till frankly, I want to puke in this industry. Oh, sweet wine drinkers. Americans grew up on Coca-Cola. That's why they like sweet wine. Well, sorry, but the, the, the French always love sweet wines. And all these really, really sweet wines like Chateau Akem, these really incredibly sweet wines were never dessert wines. They were dinner wines, but they were served to the people who like sweet wines. And then there's absolute, clear, unequivocal evidence that French champagne in France 100 years ago was very typically 30% sweeter than Coca-Cola. So, that's, um, that's so what happens? Yeah, I mean, this isn't in any of the books. This isn't part of the common knowledge of the highly educated wine experts. We're taught to mock and 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 disenfranchised sweet wine drinkers and oblivious and ignorant of what history and tradition actually was. And that was, uh, that was something that they actually found verified with a shipwreck, right? Shipwreck. And if you, if, if you look at tasting notes and whatever, yeah, in 1870, there's a, if you Google 1870 National Geographic Baltic Sea Champagne, you'll read a whole story about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. It's so opposite of what I think about when I'm thinking about champagne and French wines. And, and, and to not belabor the sweet wine, nobody's safe in the wine industry. Nobody. If you drink inexpensive wine, oh, that's, I was just reading 
something somebody had posted on Facebook. I don't know why I torture myself. Actually, <laughs> I do know, but it's a neurological phenomenon. And 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 they were talking about, you know, this, oh, this is this is industrial. It's blah, 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 blah. And and so if you drink inexpensive wine, <clears throat> you've got people who who are against you. If you drink really intense, wonderful, strong red wines, high in alcohol, lots of oak, well, there's the the collective that that's okay, and they read Robert Parker and the Wine Spectator and whatever. But there's a huge amount of the insiders. No, those wines are horrible. They're horrible with food. That's not sophisticated. So, so nobody's safe from the wrath of the of the great wine experts who are all working on a foundation of gibberish and misinformation. I heard you talk about cognitive dissonance in pairing. Can you explain what that means in terms of food and wine? Well, cognitive dissonance is when you know something's out of whack. Um, I actually first heard the term uh, in the show, I think it's called Tool Time with Tim Allen Oh, yeah. That's and he great. used to talk to an unknown neighbor. All you could see is the neighbor's hat and sometimes his pipe. And Wilson, who lived on the other side, of the, and Wilson was the fountain of knowledge. Yes. And so Tim, Tim Allen was trying to explain something, and Wilson goes, oh, that's cognitive knowledge or cognitive dissonance. When you think something should be a certain way and it's not, and you can't kind of rationalize it. So cognitive dissonance and pairing is when people try something that's supposed, quote unquote, supposed to be a bad match, but it's really delicious. So, so if, if you're doing that with a group of experts you, you, and, and, and you're not you know, at that level of expertise, you don't want to open your mouth because you'll sound stupid. Or yeah. if... Or if you hate red wine, oh, try it with this dish. It'll it'll be this magical experience, and you try it, and you still hate it. It's like, what's wrong with me? I love it, or I hate it, or whatever. And and so the cognitive dissonance are are these experiences in in wine and food that don't align to the quote unquote you know manual or to the 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 the, the uh, propriety of pairing wine and food. So it's it's really just individualized, is what you're saying. But people are just too, too afraid to speak up because they're not so-called experts, or they might feel intimidated by just the idea yep. in general. And and the and and the premise, and I, and and I'm actually just just learning to repeat this over and over again. Perception is personal. End of story. Period. Sometimes people have things and they'll agree. Sometimes people will have things and they don't agree. And you can be looking at or smelling or tasting or touching or whatever the same thing. And, and you've got completely different things going on for you on an individual basis. One person thinks this sound is awesome and you're going, God, turn it down. <laughs> you know, killing me here or, Oh, feel this. Doesn't that feel great? And you're going, no, oh, it's yucky, uh, it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so again, it gets back to two principles. Perception is personal and nothing is objective in the human experience. So what happened for me is, is, you know, going through this, this three days with the electrical engineers, having this, unbelievable new curiosity and actually a way to, for the first time in my life, all right, a way that I could actually kind of put thoughts together in, in a much more constructive and, and, and reasonable uh, manner. I started asking myself, why do we do this? Because the cognitive dissonance part is, oh, well, this goes, this wine goes with this food because they grew up together in the same region and they share a natural affinity and whatever. In the back of my head, the cognitive dissonance, you know, 
the wines are so different now than what they were like that that doesn't hold a, a candle. And, and to further that, these weren't the dishes that actually the people in the region were eating. These are specialty dishes in restaurants and, and so forth. So, so for me, after having gone through this three days of disruptive innovation and critical thinking, my brain just started to burn. And, <laughs> and, and I, was, I was paying to attention to things in a different manner. And so after, you know, that's immediately the May of that same year, I passed the Master of Wine exam. And now I had, you know, the highest credential. So I decided, you know, screw this. I'm just, <laughs> I, I want answers here. <laughs> Why are we doing all this? <laughs> and, and that led me to my odyssey of the last 30 years. So you're just leaving there with the questions of, well, does a steak really go well with a cab sauv, or is that just something that I've been told my whole life? So I assume it. Yes. And that, so then that became the, the period of deconstruction and also uh, uh, just an insatiable curiosity. So, uh, because of my new newfound mini fame, if you will, passing the Master of Wine examination. And I was working with Behringer, and Behringer was at, at the time uh, owned by Nestle. And I was um, doing more and more international work and, and so forth. I started to uh, seek out scientists in sensory science and in food science and so on, to ask what's really going on in this whole wine and food interaction space. Because a, a real critical part, it's not that there are no rules, but the rules are personal. Okay. Uh, just as the perception is personal. Uh, so what in perception, when, you, when I have this dish and this wine, there's general agreement that a certain thing happens. All right. Yeah. And so if you query people, what happens when you brush your teeth and drink orange juice? Oh. If so, it, I can tell just by your reaction, you've tried that. <laughs> oh, I'm imagining. <laughs> and, it, I, and it didn't go well. Um, and that's basically if you have sweet food, that's what happens with with wine. End of story. Doesn't matter if it's red wine, white wine. Uh, if the wine is sweeter than the food, it won't happen. But it's it's uh, uh, something called a sensory interaction, and uh, uh, and actually a sensory adaptation. More technically, you're adapting to the sweetness of the of of the toothpaste. And now, when you have the orange juice, you don't taste that sweetness, and it amplifies the bitterness and the astringency and in the, the acidity. Hmm. And it sucks for most people. <laughs> are, there are people, though, that, that it doesn't bother them because of their taste buds or just physiology, psychology. Yep. All of it. Yeah. So, so what, it, what we get down to then, what started to emerge is, okay, these interactions occur, but you've got two experts having the exact same wine and food and they're arguing over whether it's a good match or a bad match. Hmm. All right. Why could that be happening? So <laughs> each one, this has been 30 years of this. So ex <laughs> please excuse my rambling and my, my digressions. No, so it's great. What it turns out is there are three things that are part of that we all share in common and, and it can be referred to as our sensory system. Okay. okay. And all perception is subject to these three fundamental things. Uh, number one is genetics. Genetics determines what receptors, how many receptors, uh, all sorts of elements 
that dictate what you can perceive and at what intensity. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So if a person is colorblind, they don't have those receptors. They don't see that color because there is no objectivity of color because color is an illusion. In fact, all sensations are illusions, but we'll get back to that at the end. So, so I started on the path of working with and, and trying to understand how we are different in what we perceive given our genetics. Okay. okay. Uh, and then we can kind of go through each of these things if, if you like in a little deep. The second, the second thing is neurology and these are the pathways and, uh, uh, how the information from a stimulation of, of a receptor, uh, where it goes in your brain and, 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 uh, 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 where it's going to go to be processed. Um, and so what happens is you, you receive a, um, a, a, a sensory signal, a stimulation, and then it's got to go to a part, you know, it's got to go a uh, transmission line, if you will. Yep. And there's positive and negative places. There's memories. So you were able to say that you had a memory of, uh, you know, brushing your teeth and drinking orange juice. Well, if you had never done it, you'd never have that memory. And if your brain, when I said those words, your brain went to that memory to bring up what you experienced, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's uh, in, in my presentations, and, and you saw the, the spinning lady in my mm -hmm. video. Mm -hmm. The spinning lady, a uh, room of 100 people, 60% of the people are looking at the illusion, and it seems to be the woman spinning clockwise, 40% of the room will see her spinning the opposite direction, counterclockwise. Interesting. And and then people will go, oh, she changed. And other people are going, changed what? Oh, there and and so so fifty percent of the people in the room will actually be watching her and then she'll change directions. And 50% of the people in the room typically will see her change direction. The other 50% never will. <laughs> Interesting. And this is a neurological phenomenon because people go, look, she changed. And I've done this in, you know, probably near nearly 30 different countries with tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Not once is one has somebody who experiences or perceives this change in direction the, the correct thing to say would be, oh, look, I changed because there's a whole study done of this phenomenon and the spinning lady done done it um, at Princeton. And what happens is if the right hand hemisphere of your brain is processing, if the information she appears to spin in one direction and if you change the hemisphere, she appears to spin in the other direction. So it's a neurological phenomenon that's creating which direction she's spinning and everybody thinks oh there's some objectivity i see it this way so everybody should and uh, and clearly we don't interesting so then yeah. as far as like individuals and and flavor profiles and and liking things or having an aversion to them are there specific personality traits that can actually help you as a wine expert decipher what a consumer's palate might favor and if so what might be some key indicators you would look for uh yes and no and um Let's see, we've done two of the factors, and so we need to do the third factor. Let's do it. So the first factor is genetics. Second is neurology, which is also a lot of the interactions and, and all sorts of uh, cool stuff. The third thing, then, is psychology, sensory psychology. Okay. And then throughout this, I'm also going to make corrections in verbiage, but we'll get to that 
<laughs> so the sensory psychology is uh, people say, oh, my palate changed or my taste grew more sophisticated or I used to like that and I don't now. And for the vast, vast majority of that, that's psychological. So uh, and there are what has emerged that people who live in certain sensitivity worlds tend to share many neurological aspects. And then psychologically, we can also make certain determinations about all sorts of things, you know, from sort of this triad of what we all share, uh, genetics, neurology, and psychology, but yet how how incredibly personal it is. And so that that even with twins who share almost identical genetics and and uh, and corresponding neurological features, psychologically yeah. they can get to a path and and become polar opposites in their likes and dislikes. But it's a psychological change, not a change in your palate, not a change in you know in the metaphors we use that oh you're now in. A, a, a superior being because you like dry wine. <laughs> so it's more, I guess, the taste would be influenced by outside factors, like maybe subtly giving more of a positive spin on something or a negative spin on something that and they should like. Yeah, not some, some, not subtly sometimes. <laughs> so if you're a sweet wine drinker, you you are subject to the wrath. Of the of the wine knowledgeable, and <laughs> and here and here's how profoundly influential it is. Do you know people who love sweet wine? Yourself? Uh, no, not not many actually. And and here's this is part of the collective delusion, the social phenomenon, is because wine people don't hang with those kind of people. <laughs> They have to cite a family member or somebody that they work with or, or whatever. Yeah. So uh, if you do venture to the world of sweet wine lovers, you're going to find that they won't even tell you they like sweet wine because we've made them embarrassed about well, I, what their preferences are. I probably know a lot more than I think I do then. Sweet wine drinkers, if 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 you're doing valid data research and you're asking consumers do you like sweet wines the vast majority of sweet wine lovers will tell you no i don't because that's what they've been told you're not supposed to like it but there's something interesting behind that right where and it kind of ties in where you don't like the term super taster right but some people have more taste buds than others and you would say right don't don't sweet white and drinkers they collectively pick up on more flavors so 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 part part of this untangling all this mess um is at a genetic level there's a a huge variation in the number of receptors the types of receptors etc from one person to the next and so a very important study was done, and there's, there's tons of data in science about this, but wine industry doesn't really pay attention to data or history or stupid things like traditions and, and, and actually you know, be knowledgeable about any of those things, he said mockingly. Um, so what... what uh, it's it's a known phenomenon. There are certain tastes and smells and colors, color blindness and whatever. Some people have the receptors and other people don't. Uh, or some people have similar receptors, but the a second group might have a different cluster and it gives them a totally different experience. So one of the one of the really seminal things to come out was the work of Dr. Linda Bartoshuk uh, when she was at Yale University School of Medicine. 
and she was studying a phenomenon that was observed over a hundred years ago with a with a, um, a, a, a medication. It's a compound, a group of compounds called tiourea, and and it was filled in a lab. And people in the lab, it's a very very fine powder. <clears throat> the people in the lab, a uh, whole group of them, are going, oh oh, what is that? It, and they were experiencing this incredible bitterness, even in their lungs. You have taste buds in your lungs, by the way. That, oh, wow. It helps to make us, us cough and try to eject things that shouldn't be there. Um, and so there's this group of people in the lab complaining about this horrible bitterness. And there was another group in the lab that that was going, God, you're really overreacting. You know, I'm, I'm getting a little, you know, funny taste in my mouth and it's kind of, but Lord, you know, why, why all the uh, hyperbole about this? And then a third group of people are going, what are y'all talking about? Because <laughs> they, they don't have the receptors for it. It kind of reminds me of how like in food, some people, when they taste cilantro, they think it tastes like soap and then other people love it. I happen to fall into the category that loves cilantro. But yeah. to some people, it's completely repulsive. It sounds like it might be the same same thing. And shouldn't people in the food industry really have a bit, maybe a bit, a deeper understanding of this? Yeah. Uh, because what, what you'll do is the people who love cilantro, who run into the people who have OR26A, I think. I'm dyslexic, so it might be OR62A. Uh, is if that you've a got receptor? That, it's a cluster. Okay. And and so it's the cluster associated with this horrible, soapy, bitter. You can't even, if you don't have it, you can't imagine it. Right? Okay. Yeah. And, and so people who don't have it say, oh, well, I didn't like bitter things, but I, I grew to like them. You can too. Well, that's, <laughs> that's just actually uh, ignorance. Yeah. Uh, it's not knowing that what their experience is. And this is what I'm trying to forward in the dang world is, you know, quit with all this posing and I'm better than you because I drink this or I can afford that and whatever. That's yeah. not what wine used to be when it was part of the culture of France or Italy or whatever. And so Dr. Linda Bartoshuk did a study because she her hypothesis was that they could actually find the genetic markers responsible for sensitivity to the Tia urea because there was a, a, a clear indication there were kind of three variations, right? Uh, and, and so her work was not with wine. It was not with wine tasting. It was a specific compound. And can we predictively find the genetic markers and then correlate that to the experience different people are having with it, which they can do with cilantro now. Uh, and so anyways, she created the three categories. Non-taster are people who do not have uh, the gene nor the receptors. They, it's nothing. There's nothing there. Uh, second group of people they called tasters. You can taste the bitterness. Uh, but and, and it can be fairly strong and increase. But the third level is you, you put a little piece of filter paper impregnated with this compound on your tongue. And as soon as you put it, the, these people, this group puts it on their tongue. It's, oh, God, that's disgusting. <laughs> and 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 she called them super tasters. OK. Now, people in the wine industry like to know that they're special, that they're superior. <laughs> so everybody starts, oh, I'm a super taster because I can taste this compound. They have no idea what it means. And, and the fact is that most of the people that are in this highest level of bitter, bitter sensitivity are the ones like Harvey Posert. 45 years in the wine industry, and he was embarrassed, like, what's wrong with me? Because I, I can't even drink dry wines. But he's part of this genetic group. And so is Julia Child. Julia Child hated cilantro. If, if, if it was in the food, she'd throw it on the floor or send it back. Yeah. 
So interesting. Yeah. No, it's, so <laughs> so it, it really there is physiologically a thing called super tasters. People have anywhere from I think you said five hundred to eleven thousand taste buds. That big of a range. That big of a range. Five hundred to over eleven thousand. But super taster is 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 too pejorative. It's it it there are people that have high, high sensitivity to things and people who are incapable of sensing them. So we call we call it hypersensitive or tolerant and sensitive right in, in the middle. Uh, and so if you have a hypersensitivity to to cilantro as an example, you're not a super taste. There's nothing super about it. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and, then it, and it correlates to other general tendencies. And so what we've been learning to do is how can we determine kind of where people are on the spectrum, which goes all the way into autism, by the way. Everybody's on the spectrum. And autism is when you're so sensitive that the things you're perceiving are not within the norms of what we expect uh, of, of no, quote unquote normies or normal people, you know. So they've got to wear earmuffs. They've got to, you know, shade their eyes. They, they, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and so, so we're just we want the the word super taster to disappear, except for in Lin, Linda Bartoshuk's work. And Linda agrees that it's being totally taken out of context and misused. So what we do is somebody can say, oh, um, wow, I had this wine and it, it really kind of burns and it's really bitter. And like, oh, got it. You must be more sensitive to the burn of alcohol. It's called <laughs> trigeminal burn and, and, and bitter sensitivity. And then that correlates to people who love salt because people who really, really love salt have been punished their whole life for liking it so much. When actually it's an indication that they have a hypersensitivity to bitterness. Salt suppresses bitterness. Take the bitter pill with a grain of salt. Oh, now I can understand the phenomenon. And you get that and I don't. You want more salt on your food. I I may or may not. I actually do. And, uh, and, and quit telling people they're stupid or they're ruining the food or whatever. You have no idea what what the perception of another person is. I don't care how expert. As a matter of fact, the more expert you are as a chef or in hospitality or in wine, the further disconnected from reality you become. <laughs> Interesting. Why is that? Well, it just simply because we accept all this BS that's in the books, that's all part of the wine education program, that's not true that's based on pseudosciences and it doesn't account for perception as personal. And so people argue uh, if um, uh, a really great friend of mine, somebody who I, I admire you and you'll know of him, Dan Berger, do you know the wine writer, Dan Berger? I actually don't. Okay. He's in, in uh, uh, Santa Rosa, just a wonderful, thoughtful, really smart guy. And he is on the high, high end of hypersensitivity. Okay. 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 And you'll see it in all his writing. Uh, uh, these wines are over oaked. They're too high in alcohol. They don't go with food. They're blah, 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 blah. And he likes wines that are much more delicate and, and this and that. And so I can actually just, I, I can read tasting notes and tell tell, <laughs> do a complete profile of a person just based on their tasting notes. It's like Robert and, Parker really loving yeah, those big, bold wines. He's on the tolerant end of it. And and if you are physiologically, neurologically, and, and or just psychologically aligned with Parker, that's great. Yeah. Those wines are awesome. And the more, the better. But... But in Dan Berger's world, in my mother-in-law's world, the more that Parker likes something, the less that Dan Berger will like it. Yeah. It's out of balance. You know, there's this idea of balance in a wine. Well, perception is personal. So the idea of balance is, is absolutely, completely subject to the individual. 
That's so true. And I think that that's such an important conversation because if you even take things like, just taking it in a food aspect where it's like some people might love uni, some people might hate it, some people hate fish, some people love it. You know, it's just, it's interesting because you always do hear, well, like, oh, caviar is so refined and so, you know, uni or whatever it is, it's just considered a lot more of a, higher class ingredient but that you're saying that's total bullshit it's just this individual likes it and this individual doesn't and the reason this conversation is important is so that people aren't afraid to express how they perceive it because it's not wrong it's just them that's the way it occurs and I, i can tell you what i'm seeing right now out my window and And parts of it, you might be able to then go to your personal memories and go, oh, I know what a snow-capped mountain looks like. I know what pine trees look like and so on. So you can gain a general sense, but you really don't know what I'm looking at. You don't know what I'm seeing from my point of view. And even if we were sitting right next to each other, uh, you know, we, we learn to work with perceptions and and, and how to compensate also, I have to wear glasses. So if if I'm looking at something and I say, oh, here, if you really want to see what I'm seeing, put on my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> You're going like, what? How can you see anything? You know? Just get a headache. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but yet, oh, try this wine and food pairing because it's it's what I read or what I tried or what I know or what I was taught or whatever. And it's really great. And somebody's going on, you know, this just sucks. Thanks. But (laughs) that's a great analogy. I like that. I like your analogy about the shoe too. Like, Oh, I'm a shoe expert. And you know, this shoe, you're, you're, can you tell that? Yeah. So, so, so for background on this, everybody listening to the podcast, uh, uh, the analogy is, is what if shoe, the shoe industry didn't know that genetics played a big, big role in, in the proper shoe for the proper individual? And so you go into a shoe store with a master of shoes who doesn't know people are physiologically different. And they're trying to sell you a pair of shoes and it won this prize at, at some big shoe expert, you know, uh, uh, competition. And, and they put it on your foot and you go, ow, that hurts. Oh, well, obviously your foot's not mature. If you knew more about shoes, you would appreciate it. And that's how stupid the wine industry is being. It's our ignorance of history and tradition. It's this invention of pseudosciences and the idea, oh, the shoe fits me. It should fit you, too. Or I can see this here. Try my glasses. You'll know it's and 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 it. So what it turns out we're missing is the essence of hospitality, the, the wine industry and all this service education and, and all this is actually creating an inhospitable environment for selling and sharing wine and family and community and all these kind of things. It's just this laundry list of BS that, you know. So how do we change that? What's, what does the new dialogue look like in terms of, you know, figuring out wines for individuals? Because there's so many factors, especially like as a master of wine or for sommeliers to be able to recommend the perfect wine for the individual as opposed or for the diner as opposed to the dinner. What does that, what does that conversation look like? How do you, are there key indicators to some, something a person might like in terms of a different wine or what are you actually looking for because I know you have a formula 
Thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned next week for part two of this incredible interview where we dive further into the science and psychology of why you like the wines you like. Also, if you are loving this podcast, please leave us a review. It would truly mean the world. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on all of the new episodes we have coming your way. You can follow us on Instagram at Everyday Food and Wine, as well as our incredible guest at Tim Haney. That's T-I-M-H-A-N-N-I. We'll see you next week.